Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Adele Merson, Callum Ross and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories read by Alex Watson. The number of migrants deported to Rwanda is likely to be in the hundreds each year, according to Dominic Raab. The senior government minister said he wanted to manage expectations about the controversial plan for people arriving in the UK illegally. Scotland Yard is facing demands to explain why Boris Johnson escaped its Partygate investigation with only one fine. The Prime Minister was told he faces no further action when the Metropolitan Police closed its inquiry after issuing 126 fines for lockdown breaches in Downing Street and Whitehall. And the US Congress will not support a free trade agreement with the UK if the government persists with deeply concerning plans to unilaterally discard the Northern Ireland Protocol, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said. In a strongly worded intervention, Ms Pelosi urged the UK and the EU to continue negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol to uphold peace in the region. Thanks, Alex. Now let's turn our attention to what's been happening closer to home, or not, as the case may be. It's been a bit of a jet-setting week for some. Nicola Sturgeon was in the States talking up links to Scotland and causing apoplexy among her opponents for talking up independence. Conservative Murdo Fraser then triggered his opponents by having the temerity to go to Seville in term time to watch Rangers. But let's not start with those two. There's a more interesting international transport story to get to. Callum, you've been digging away at a bit of intrigue since a flight took off from Inverness to Moscow, despite sanctions because of the war in Ukraine. It's a fascinating tale. Uh, Our regular readers will will know all about it, but maybe you could bring us up to date a little bit with this one because it's got a few twists and turns. Yeah, that, that's right, Andy. I mean, I, I suppose it might be helpful to go back and look at the kind of uh, how this all came about. Um, and it really takes us back to the first few days of, of, mm. of the kind of conflict in Ukraine. Um, I think February 24th uh, was when Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, the following day, the following evening on the 25th, I think around, around about nine o'clock at night, the Civil Aviation Authority on, on behalf of the UK government kind of issued this NOTAM, which is basically a ban on uh, aircraft uh, that the way it was written was owned, chartered, operate or operated by a person connected with Russia um, from uh, UK airspace. So, so uh, that was introduced in the evening of the twenty fifth of February, and then the following morning, a flight took off from Inverness uh, for Moscow. Uh, it was a, a private charter uh, jet. Now this all kind of was highlighted by the SNP's Ian Blackford a couple of days later. He took to Twitter and um, complained about why this flight was allowed to take off and whether Inverness Airport had been properly told about the rules. Uh, And that got a response on Twitter from Grant Shapps at the time, the UK Transport Secretary, who kind of uh, implied that uh, it was Inverness Airport's fault for uh, for not uh, adhering to this uh, no-tam banning flight. So so that all happened and it all went a bit quiet. I uh, I tried to get some more information out of uh, the Department for Transport, but they they never really came back with anything. They they wouldn't tell me whether Inverness Airport was under investigation for breaching this rule. Uh, they kept kind of just stonewalling me basically. So I put an FOI request in. 
to uh, to both the UK government, DFT. They both came back around the same time, but DFT didn't answer mm. uh, the FOI request, uh, which basically sought communications relating to the flights to that to that flight. Uh, but the Scottish government one did, and they released yeah. So so they released their communications, the Scottish government, uh, and that included kind of notes to ministers, including. Nicholas Sturgeon and the Transport uh, Secretary Michael Matheson, in which they basically said Inverness Airport had done everything they could have done, um, that uh, they had sought approval from uh, National Air Traffic Control Service, NATS. They had sought approval from the Border Force, Home Office, uh, Department, Border Force, and the Police's Special Branch, the kind of security wing of the police, and they had all given it the go-ahead. And they also, the Scottish government also released these transcripts of the exchange between Nats and. That's quite quite unusual, isn't it? Just to, to get that level of detail from them about you know who's saying what when. Yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> well, it's interesting. The Scottish government released it, and the DFT didn't. I suppose uh, it could be argued that that uh, it, you know by releasing this information, it put a bit of pressure yeah. on the UK government. Because uh, it did seem to show that, that Grant Sharps' suggestion that um, the Inverness Airport had failed to comply with uh, uh, this NOTAM. Uh, well, certainly raised questions about that that idea because Inverness Airport had clearly gone to various UK agencies, including the UK government, and been given given the go-ahead to let the flight depart. So, um, so essentially, the UK government approved this flight but you have Grant Sharps accusing Inverness Airport publicly of being the one to blame. So, so that sparked, obviously, a huge political row. The SNP have written to Mr Sharps demanding answers. It was raised at Prime Minister's questions, uh, Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday mm-hmm. as well, in which uh, uh, Boris Johnson's been... Uh, you know, he was urged by Richard Thompson, MP, the SNP MP for Gordon, to reveal who, who was on the flight and... And to say how why it was allowed to leave uh, in spite of the, the sanctions, and what's going to be done to stop that that happening ever again? I mean, Grant Shapps is fair to say he's sort of doubling down a little bit on this one, though, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he seemed to. I mean, Sky News was reporting yesterday that he was he was asked about it, and he's continuing to blame the uh, Inverness Airport and suggesting it was the SNP just uh, causing trouble. But I mean. <laughs> If you see that, if you read our our coverage of it, it's clear that that Inverness Airport sought approval for the flight from national air traffic controllers, from uh, border force, and from the police, and they all said it could go ahead. So something's not adding up here. Um, there seems to have been mm-hmm. some confusion uh, about the rules, but um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's Mr. Shapps's continued insistence that it was Inverness's air, airport's fault is is interesting. We've been talking about this a lot, sort of through the week. Um, it's easy to sort of um, get sidetracked by thoughts of spy thrillers and things like this. And the question still remains: we don't actually know who was on the plane. But um, I mean, that that's that's one avenue that obviously uh, politicians are trying to to get answered with Boris Johnson in, in the Commons there. But really, it, it's not so much about who was on the plane; it was about how it was able to happen in the first place. It was supposed to be sanctions. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, both Mr. Shapps and Ian Blackford, even if right from the start, were both suggesting this plane shouldn't have been allowed to take off. So then it comes to why why was it allowed to take off? Um, you know, you're more 
your conspiracy theorists might suggest that this is someone that was given special permission to get out of the UK before, you know, sanctions really took hold or as they were taking hold. Um, or, you know, alternatively, it could just have been that there was um, a lot of confusion about the rules as they were being brought in. But um, it obviously, I don't know how much it costs, but it obviously costs a lot of money to charter a jet from Inverness to Moscow at short notice. Um, so you've got to imagine this is someone with a lot of money or someone connected to someone with a lot of money. We, there's a lot of kind of speculation online about oligarchs who own estates in the Highlands and, and uh, throughout Scotland, whether it was maybe one of them, whether they might have uh, been a donor to the Conservative Party or not. You know, there's a lot of in intrigue around this, but we don't know who, who was on the flight. We know with, we know from these documents released by the Scottish government that it was uh, a family of three um, we don't even know for sure whether they were Russian or not. Yeah, but you've you've carried on with this uh, story. There's been lots of good um, twists in, in, in the tale so far, and there's a, a piece that anyone interested in this can can go on to the, the, the P&J uh, website now if they want and have a look. There's a, a nice map which shows exactly where and when the flight took off and went around Europe and how it went from Inverness to Moscow. Um, I mean, is there more is there more to come in this, do you think? Oh, I think so. I mean, I think, I think that... The SNP certainly intend, you know, Boris Johnson told the Commons he was going to uh, keep the properly update the the House uh, about it when he when they gets the information. Uh, I'm sure the SNP will hold him to that, and I think you know there's still a big gulf between what Grant Shapps is saying and what 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 the kind of evidence points to at the moment. Um, so I think I think we need to yeah. to get some more answers about what exactly happened there. Yeah, aye, well, it's it's been pretty fascinating reading. So, um, yeah, proper tale of intrigue with more to come, I think. Um, what, what else has been uh, catching your eye? Adele, you've been uh, following a, a long saga connected right the way back to COP26 and Tales of the Environment and right up to the present day with a big focus on energy and how that uh, affects a lot of people in, in the country, particularly in the northeast. Yes, I think this week's been interesting because there's been several kind of um, things happening which have all kind of related around energy or COP26. We had, um, it was a big focus of Nicola Sturgeon's trip to the States. She gave, you know, had a round table about the just transition. Her speech was largely rooted around the climate crisis. And then we had Alok Sharma, the COP26 president up in Scotland, where he was sort of marking his own report card on how things have gone since COP last year. And then we obviously had the windfall tax debate, which is a debate that keeps coming around, but there's, there is growing clamour, you know, growing demand there for this windfall tax. And um, Labour brought forward an amendment during the Queen's speech debate to introduce the windfall tax and it was defeated again, but it definitely feels like that's coming to a head. You've got uh, there's reports today that Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are sort of not seeing eye to eye on that. Uh, Boris Johnson said, it's said to have said that number 10, believe it's an ideologically unconservative thing to do, whereas Rishi Sunak appears to be more leaving the door open. He said in the Commons that uh, no option is off the table. That's kind of what he's been yeah. saying repeatedly on that. So the door is ajar, I would say. It's strange because, I mean, it, it does seem like it is a, a popular policy in the in the general public to impose a tax on ex 
extremely profitable parts of the industry. Conservatives as well have have um, tried to put a bit of pressure on Boris Johnson to 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 get this sorted. Um, is there any any sign of a, a U-turn on this one at all? Do you think? It's hard to tell. I think, as I say, I think there's definitely a chance. I think just from the statements that have been made, and also, I guess, growing as we move towards October, and we're going to have you know another price cap and mm. a winter coming where we're going to be using our heating a, a lot more than we are just now. I think there'll, there'll also be the growing public pressure. Um, Rishi Sunak has said that he will put off introducing it just now. But he has called for oil and gas giants to invest the profits back into growth, jobs and energy security. I mean, that seems it's a little bit wooly. I don't know how exactly you measure that. Like, at what point do you decide yeah. there's been enough jobs or enough growth? Um, and he said that needs to happen at a significant scale. So he appears to be suggesting there would need to be a lot of jobs um, being that the profits would need to be getting invested back into the creation of a lot of jobs. So I, I think there's definitely definitely a chance there but Boris Johnson just does seem dead against it so far yeah and connected to this as well is this idea that we're trying to shift away from oil and gas um and it's going back to what you're talking about the COP26 uh, report card it was only six months ago we're halfway I think to COP27 um but Alok Sharma he didn't I think he was trying to sort of protect the legacy that he, he has from COP26 but you had some pretty dismal things to say about it. Yes, it's, it certainly doesn't feel like there's been a great deal of progress since then. I think the there was such a wider conversation happening last year around the climate. And in the last few months, we've obviously seen something we would never have necessarily foreseen happening, which is the crisis in Ukraine. And that just appears to have changed the whole public and political debate around things. Um, there's obviously from the conservative side of things, they're arguing that there needs to be more oil and gas exploration to protect our energy security. It obviously depends what expert you speak to as to whether that's a good argument or not, because new oil and gas fields take years to be approved, to get up and running, to get the infrastructure in place. So you're not going to see an immediate change to our energy security just by going down that road. So I think it's strange we've gone from what seemed like a lot of people were on the same page last year to that that discussion has maybe been pushed back. I don't know what it will take to kind of come back forward. I imagine we're coming into summer. There, there's probably, unfortunately, going to be some like extreme weather events and parts of parts of the world that might again pivot the discussion back to what we're doing on the climate. But right now, it definitely feels like it's being overshadowed by sort of other geopolitical concerns. Yeah, uh, and as we move towards COP twenty seven, there's going to be a lot more of this um, back into the public eye, and we're still waiting for. For things like the Scottish government to tell us what it what it means by a just transition, how how it's going to move um, jobs from from one industry to another, we we don't really know whether we're going to be taxing these um, industries or even the SNP are kind of a little bit tied up in knots about it, saying well maybe we should just tax a wider group of industries. Was that what was it Stephen Flynn his sort of halfway house it seemed to get a little bit of support? The 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 SNP they did take part in the debate in the Commons and. Yeah, it is a sort of, I guess, on the fence view where they, they're they not against the proposal of a windfall tax, but they want a kind of wider levy. They talked about how there's 
six different companies that they didn't name. I'm not too sure off the top of my head who those companies are, but six companies that had done really well, um, the profit wise from Amazon. a result of the pandemic. I imagine it's yeah, retailers, online retailers or supermarkets, I'm not too sure. Yeah. Um, they want it to be a sort of wider levy rather than focusing just on the sort of North Sea oil producers. Yeah. They're not going quite as strongly as the Liberal Democrats and, and Labour on that one, but they're not yeah. ruling it out either. I mean, obviously at a Scottish level, it's on the UK government to decide. So in that sense, they don't need to, I guess, reach a decision. Mm-hmm. Justin, what's been capturing capturing your attention this week? So this has been an interesting week in terms of politicians travelling abroad from Scotland. Uh, we've had two cases which have come into the public eye. The first was, of course, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon was in the United States this week. She was meeting with Nancy Pelosi, uh, the senior Democrat, and she received criticism from the Conservatives, as is often the case, for talking about independence while on this tour and was accused of essentially ignoring the day-to-day issues, whether that be the ferry scandal, the COVID pandemic recovery. And I suppose that caused a little bit of discussion as to whether these trips are valid, whether they should happen, or whether it's you know essentially a vanity tour. Personally, I would argue that there can be some value to them. You know, Not everything a politician does is always going to be policy-based from a local level to a national level. There are always engagements, there are always meetings and it's not as if Nicola Sturgeon going to America is going to sway Joe Biden's policy decisions or his approach towards the UK. However, when you think back to COP26, it's common for big name politicians to gather together. And I suppose there's an argument that if you want the Scottish Parliament to be seen as quite prestigious and as quite important, you want your First Minister to be seen as a respectable figure on an international level. I think the issue maybe comes where it's, you know, it's, it's maybe not been the best time for this because there are a lot of domestic problems right now. There is the ferry scandal. We've had issues with the trains this week. So if you're just observing this and you're seeing Sturgeon on the news, I would understand why the you know average person might get a sense that the First Minister is a bit you know disconnected from that when she's out in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's just called the stushy for a reason, I suppose. But I mean, sometimes these arguments can get a little predictable, can't they? I mean, there is that idea that Nicola Sturgeon perhaps alone is is you know globe trotting where other first ministers did exactly the same jack mcconnell was um very keen on um improving the scottish parliament's image abroad i mean you think back to things like the malawi um partnership and and then labor first ministers would go off go off to america for tartan week and things like that um it's mostly the conservatives though that seem to have a bit of a of a, of a problem with this one i mean they have got a a, a pretty big point about the number of problems that are being stored up here but um i mean let's transport seems to be dominating a lot of what we're talking about today but yeah the, the trains i mean as we're speaking right now we're just about to get into this new kind of emergency timetable aren't we i mean this is going to cause huge problems for a newly nationalized service i mean callum with so much going on in 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 the country just now with cost of living crisis and all that thing is is now really the time to be trying to nationalize services particularly one like scotrail which is had a, which has had a really tough time during the pandemic with passenger levels in particular yeah i mean and it, like you say it comes at a time where ev- the cost of everything's going up um council tax you know energy bills uh, uh we, we've seen it across the board and uh there's also you know 
there's not just issues in the trains, the other kind of nationalised transport network in Scotland, the ferries, um, uh, is in huge turmoil uh, at the moment, Calmac as well. So yeah, um, it's, it's, I guess it's, uh, it's possibly, possibly not the best timing uh, for the government and it seems to be dominating a lot of uh, a lot of the discourse at the moment at Holyrood, these issues with our our, our transport network. Um, it, it sometimes comes across as a bit of a sort of central belt issue. I mean, there's not that many trains for commuting when you get further further afield away from Edinburgh and Glasgow. But um, I mean, I think places like Aberdeen being pretty poorly served by this. I mean, Adele, we were talking about this the other day. What remind me when's the last train? These days, I mean, if you if you've got any business out beyond Aberdeen, you're in a bit of, bit of trouble, aren't you? Yes, I think I'm not sure about down to the central belt, but Aberdeen's last train, once this new timetable comes in to go north to Inverness, will leave shortly after six p.m. You just think, I mean, <laughs> most people potentially haven't finished work by then. They certainly, it's it's not far into the evening at all, and um, they said this timetable will be in place until at least June third, I think, but. The fear there is that it continues for weeks and months. And I think a really big sector that will be annoyed by this is sort of hospitality and nightlife. You've got things like sports matches. Um, mm-hmm. You've got gigs, concerts, cultural events. And you think it's just going to be really, really difficult to get to them now if they, the trains are finishing up so late and it's been a really rough two years as well in that context so you've got finally some of these industries are hoping to to do to make some money and now they've got people going to be left stranded there's I guess there's safety concerns there as well if people can't get safely home especially women um it's just it's just really not it's not good enough to be honest (laughs) no yeah, so the the SNP are getting it in the neck a lot for 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 these problems. But there's there is one more transport adjacent story I think we could turn to, the the travels of Myrtle Fraser. We'll call this chapter. Justin, you've been tracking Mid Scotland and Fife's finest. What's he been up to? Well, yes, this has been perhaps unfortunate timing for the Conservatives this week. While they were criticising Nicola Sturgeon for going off to America. On what I suppose you could still say is government business, Myrtle Fraser and Dean Lockhart, another Conservative MSP, were both in Seville for the Rangers Europa League final. So this was criticised by the SNP's Pete Wisher and indeed the SNP in general. Uh, Mr Fraser and his colleague Mr Lockhart were both away at a time when there was government business on in Holyrood, so they missed chances to ask key questions. On Wednesday, I believe, the portfolio questions were about Scotland's COVID recovery. Myrtle Fraser is a key member of the committee. I believe he's the deputy convener. So you could argue that if you're a constituent and you want to hear the thoughts of MSPs on this, and if you want to hear the government questioned about it, he really should have been there. There is also the argument as well that in other sectors, if you have scheduled work days, you can't just take them off. So, for example, teachers have a lot of holidays, but... There are set days when they need to work and they can't just take those off for a minor reason. And I get that politicians aren't only in when Holyrood is convened. They have constituency business, they have party business. But you would expect for those times that Holyrood sits and for the reasonable pay that MSPs get, when parliamentary business is on, they really should be there. Even if that is remotely, they really should be engaging and they really should be asking questions. The Conservatives defended it by saying that 
it was a huge opportunity for Birdle Fraser, Fraser to see you know, his boyhood club, I suppose, and the team that he loves. And that's understandable, but there would have been teachers across Scotland who would have loved to go to the game as well, but they couldn't because they were working and they, they couldn't just take it off. I mean, yeah, it, it's a bit of a lightning rod for, for anger, that one, but I mean, are we at risk of getting a little bit dreary here? I mean, can folk not go and have fun? You know, like they were saying, imagine imagine for a minute the Greenock Morton are in the final of a major European tournament. You'd, you'd take a few days off, right? I would like to, but I'm not an elected politician. <laughs> so there, there is an argument to be made. I don't think it's the worst offence in the world. You know, I, I don't think anyone's going to be too angry at it. And certainly for all the Rangers fans that were there, some of them might have been his constituents. They're certainly not going to be annoyed that he's out at the game. They might actually like it. I suppose if you're going to make a positive argument, you could say that it's an MSP being an open and, you know, we criticise MSPs and politicians in general for not being in touch with the common person. I suppose if you're going to put a kind of positive spin on it, you could say that this is him engaging on the ground level with, you know, you know his constituents. But I think it's more that if one party... Meeting constituents in Seville. Oh, I'm, I'm sure he ran into a few. But I, I think the criticism will then comes if skills. the Conservatives are going to criticise the SNP for Nicola Sturgeon going abroad, their MSP should probably be in Holyrood when government business is on. Yeah. It's the double standards that get you in the end. So it's that time of the day where we start thinking about who to give the stoosh of the week. Um, it's not going to be Grant Shapps. It's not going to be Myrtle Fraser. We're returning, I think, for maybe only the second time in our illustrious history. Um, um, we're going to award the stoosh of the week to an inanimate object again. And this time, we are going to say... Scott Rail, you are the stoosh of the week. Stoosh of the week. That's it for this week. Thanks to Callum Ross, Adele Merson, Justin Bowie, and producer Morvan McIntyre. And of course, to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.